So this has been our theme through these last weeks, and we'll be through Easter, why Jesus, asking the question, why Jesus, going to the Gospel of John to investigate discussions Jesus has with people where they wonder who he is and whether he really is the person he claims to be. Now, I'm going to be in John 6, and I love this passage. I love the Gospel of John, and I love this passage, even though it's a difficult passage. It's one of the hard sayings of Jesus that we're going to read in just a minute. I want you to remember how perfectly God does everything as we read through this passage. Last night, I was doing a wedding at Nottaway Plantation, and we did it outside. The rain was over. The sun came out. It was a spectacular evening for a wedding. We were under two huge oak trees that reached their branches up and connected above us. I told the crowd, I think they also connected below us through those root systems. And you know that sometimes live oak trees will topple over, but uh, when they grow it in groves, they tie together and are less likely to do so. God just does everything so perfectly well. I was astonished at the trees and all that God had made, and I know you rejoice in those things too. When I look at His handiwork, I see His glory. I hope you do. We're going to see His glory in this passage if we see it aright. I want you to remember as we read this passage that there are two people hearing these words and processing everything that's going on. One of them is the Apostle Peter, and you will see his confession of faith at the end of the passage. The other is a man named Judas who doesn't say a thing. And yet, even in his silence, he is referenced twice by John who wrote this story and this gospel. We hear about Judas in this passage, and it makes us wonder what in fact is going on in Judas's heart as he hears these difficult things that Jesus says. So I'm in John chapter 6. I'm beginning to read in verse 56. Jesus says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where He was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray Him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, 
To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. You know the struggle. The struggle is intellectual. You hear Jesus say, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And intellectually, you struggle to comprehend what he's talking about. You struggle with it emotionally. It's just hard. It's hard. Jesus does not have an easy road. That's evident even from these words. Unless somebody eats my flesh and drinks my blood, sounds very extreme. And Jesus' mission is very extreme. He came to die. He's going to die on the cross for the sins of the world. That's his destiny. That's where he's headed. He's headed to the cross. He's laying down his life, the Scripture says, for us. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. And that's what Jesus does. He surrenders. He lays his life down for us. This hard road that Jesus has to travel Summarized in this statement, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's startling. It makes the disciples struggle with who he is and what he's up to. It makes them also ask about their own path. If this is the path that Jesus, our leader, is going to walk, then what about us? What do we get out of all this? And the truth of the matter is, Jesus makes it clear that it's not only he who lays down his life, But his teaching is, you must lay your life down as well. If it's eat my flesh and drink my blood, it's your blood and your flesh as well laid down on behalf of the Savior. He says to the disciples, no, you must deny yourself. Every day, take up your cross and follow me. This is the path of discipleship. It's what Jesus lays out for them. It's not easy. It's, it's hard. It's difficult. They struggle with this complete surrender. We've been singing these songs about complete surrender, about how Jesus is all in all. Did you hear the words when you sang them? All our hope is in you. All our hope is in you. Jesus, Messiah, light of the world. And we sang it over and over again this morning. Everything we have, all of who we are and what we expect, it is in Christ. He is our all in all. And this difficult saying means that. If the master's going to give his all, then his servants will as well. Now, Jesus says to them, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's verse 54, before the passage we've read. So Jesus is telling them, look, while I am surrendering my life and giving all that I have, and you are surrendering your life too and giving all that you have, I am going to give you eternal life. This life may be difficult, and your laying down of your life may be literal, and it would be. 
I mean, for James, the brother of John, who is standing right there, he's going to be the first one who is martyred among the twelve. And they will celebrate his death in Jerusalem, and Herod will be emboldened to go and arrest Peter and John, and Peter and John are going to end up in prison. In fact, for those twelve, that band of twelve that, that said, yes, Lord, we'll follow you, they all have a difficult, violent ending, except for the man that wrote this gospel, John. He lives to be an old man, and he is exiled to a rock in the Mediterranean Sea, the Isle of Patmos. But all the rest of them, tradition says they died violent deaths. They gave their all on behalf of the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel which they preached. You know the struggle of surrendering all that you have to Christ. Every one of us who have gotten the message, who understand this is total, this is complete surrender, it's all or nothing. You don't get three pounds of God, you know, for $50. You got to give it all. All of us who understand the message, we struggle with that. And we ask ourselves daily, Lord, have I done my best? Have I given my all? Is it all laid down for you? And we recommit our life over and over again in this journey with Jesus as we determine again that he's going to have all of us and everything that we are surrendered unto him. So we all know the struggle that they are having with these words. But have you seen the insult? Do you know the offense? Jesus asked the question, does this offend you? And the answer is, Yes, it offends us. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. I'm the bread sent down from heaven. They've been having this discussion throughout this chapter. Jesus fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. And now he's expounding on how he is the bread of life. They're supposed to see the sign, the feeding of the 5,000, and understand that Jesus himself is the bread. And he's telling them plainly, now I'm not the kind of bread your, your fathers ate in the wilderness, that manna. They ate that and they died. Listen, whoever eats this bread, they live forever. And the crowd is saying to themselves, wait a minute. Who does he think he is? Who's he claiming to be? There is offense in these words. We are offended by these words. Who do you think you are, in fact? And the offense is in Jesus himself. It's not that we misunderstand. We're not misreading Jesus. Jesus is making these claims. They are clear. He's claiming he came down from heaven. He claims he gives life to the world. He claims if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have eternal life. These are his claims. And they are so offended, they're going to figure out a way to kill him. And they will. They'll put him through a mock trial and they'll beat him nearly to death and they'll nail him to a cross and they'll lift him up to die and he'll hang there till he's dead. That's what his generation, his contemporaries will do with him because he is a blasphemer. And people will walk by that cross and look up there and say, good riddance, what a nuisance. We're glad he's gone. There is an offense in the cross and there's an offense in Jesus. And we need to realize it and understand it. And we need to even receive it. That God in Jesus is making a declaration about me and you that is inescapable. 
The day that Jesus was hung up to die and God gave his only son, he said about all of us, not a single person in this room will live the righteous life that I've called them to and do my perfect will. Not one. Not one in all the churches, in all the nations of the earth, not one in all the generations, not all of the billions of people who have walked this planet Not a single one will live as I have called him to live and do my perfect will. Not one will be worthy of my presence in heaven. And so since all of us are corrupted and all of us are sinners, God gave up the day Jesus died that any of us would ever measure up and gave his one and only son as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. It is God's statement that Psalm 14 is indeed true. They are all turned away. There is none righteous, no, not one. We don't like the way that sounds. It strikes us. But we are sinners. Now, people are wonderful creations of God. We are made in God's image and after his likeness, as the scripture says. And that is not eradicated by our sin, but it is marred and blurred by our sin. We give all humans on the planet the dignity they deserve, for they are of infinite worth in the sight of God because they are his creations and made in his image. And they are capable of amazing things. We know that. But every one of them is a sinner. And so the offense is Jesus being the Lamb of God is God's ultimate declaration of the failure of every one of us to measure up. It strikes at our pride, at our striving. We've been working hard to be good. It strikes at our self-righteousness. We just feel like we have really done well. And God ought to accept us on the basis of how we've done. And so, hearing Jesus, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Only the ones who eat my flesh and drink my blood will have eternal life. This intimacy with Jesus, this reality of knowing him, is the only way to have eternal life. And we calculate the cost. What does it mean? to come to Jesus for salvation. We so frequently come to Jesus feeling pretty good about ourselves. I mean, our mothers told us we were special, right? You are so talented. You are so smart. You're ahead of the class. You are an A student. You are going to do great things. And those are important things to say to our kids. And we grow up believing in this specialness that is there within us. And feeling special and feeling talented and feeling smart and feeling good like we are really good people. We come to the narrow gate. Jesus says, narrow is the gate that leads to life. And we come whistling to that gate and we think, you know, we're just going to trust in Jesus and go through this gate. And we realize we can't get our backpack through the gate. And we can't get our luggage through the gate. The gate's too narrow. 
we back up a moment and look at the mountain we thought was rock and dirt on either side of this gate and it's all the luggage people have brought and abandoned at this gate see all our hope is in you all of our hope is in you not in our church attendance not in our tithing not in our bible reading not in the prayers we pray not in all the religious duties and exercises we performed. Not in all the morality and all of the good citizenship and all the good parenting we did. All our hope is in you, Jesus, not in any of this. And in order to go through this narrow gate, you can't bring any of your own righteousness. You've got to leave it at the gate. Explains why sometimes you see people coming away from the gate, carrying their stuff. They're going away because they don't want to drop all this good stuff that they believe God will accept if they can just get before him and get an audience. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, Jesus says, you have no part in me. He's not talking about literal. The Jews understand that. They know he's not talking about literal. He's talking about himself being the source of life and the Holy Spirit. And that's why he says, I'm talking to you about spirit and life. The flesh counts for nothing. It's not about the flesh. It's about the spirit and life. This is how you know me and connect to me and find in me your life. You come through Jesus the Savior. He is all in all. And you can't bring your stuff. I don't know what Judas is thinking. Judas may have come to Christ hoping that he would be the Messiah that many of them expected. And now he's hearing these words and he's hearing this extreme description of faith in Christ and belief in him. And he's thinking, this isn't what I signed on for, you know. The Jews asked Jesus, what must we do that we might work the works of God? That's in this chapter. And Jesus says bluntly, this is the work of God. You want something to do? This is the work of God. To believe in the one he has sent. That's the work of God. Well, that doesn't sound like very much of a work. You aren't going to break out sweating, believing. And yet Jesus sums it down to this. You want to do the work of God? This is it. Believe in the one he has sent. And Jesus himself is declaring in this passage, I'm the one. I'm your only hope. You need to trust in me and believe in me. I've come down from heaven to bring you this message. And I am the Lamb of God and I'm going to die on the cross for your sin. This is Jesus' declaration. It is clear. And Judas is saying, I just don't know. And there are many disciples who after hearing this, they just turn around and leave. No, it doesn't sound politically correct. It doesn't sound like people are going to accept this around the world. It sounds like it's going to be offensive to them, and indeed it is. It's not like this insult of Jesus ever disappeared from the planet. It was there in the first century. They crucified Jesus over it. Then they killed his disciples over it. Then they persecuted the church for 300 years over it. And still today, Jesus is a rock of offense, the Bible calls him and a stone of stumbling. 
and the crucifixion itself is offensive to people, that someone would have to die for our sin. It seems so offensive and, and backwards, and, and we're just not really that bad. But God's declaration is, yes, you are. You're helpless, unable to save yourselves, unable to live the law as I gave it to you, unable to serve me in my perfect will. And therefore, in your failure and in your sin, I'm going to do something for you that you cannot do. You cannot do this. I'm going to save you through the work of my son upon the cross. I'm going to make a way for you to come into my presence holy and just and reckoned as righteous through the blood of Christ shed upon the cross. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To come to Jesus is to acknowledge there's no other place. Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we know that you are the Holy One of God. So he makes the faith statement, the confession for the others who believe in Jesus. He's saying there's no place else to go. I think Judas is mulling these things over and that's why he's mentioned in this passage, though he says not a thing. John is there, Judas is there, Jesus is talking, he's saying these hard sayings. And John sees him. Maybe he sees his, his verbal language, his expressions. And he realizes, of course, what Judas finally does is abandon Jesus and betray him. And it's this kind of language and this kind of call that sends him away. It's better that you understand what the true call is that Jesus is giving rather than misunderstand and live the illusion that somehow Jesus is just an addition to your own self-righteous and goodness. He's not. Jesus is not some added thing to all the good stuff you do. He is the sole thing and the only thing that can ever get you to heaven. Believing in Him is the only way. And this radical statement of Jesus, eat my flesh, drink my blood, or you have no part in me, it sums up the good news. This is good news. It's good news that God gave his son. It's good news that Jesus laid down his life. It's good news that he made a way for us because we can't do it on our own. And it's grace. So, you know the way. The way is what Peter said. The way is what Jesus said. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the way. Bow with me, please. Maybe you have never trusted Jesus as Savior, but you've been thinking about it. What a great moment to just bow your head and say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me for my sin. I believe you died on the cross for me and rose again from the dead, and I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Would you pray that prayer unto God?
entrusting yourself completely to Jesus, finding Him as your only way and your only hope? Would you rely solely and wholly upon Him and no other? No other thing, no other work, no other affiliation, no other performance or credentials, but only in Christ will you stand. God, we pray today that you will help us know how completely we are lost without Christ in our life. How completely we must surrender to his will and his purpose. How radical and extreme this call is to follow him. God, I pray we'll know today that we are indeed sinners in need of a savior and we have no hope apart from him. God, I pray that we will go the way of Peter, believing in the one you have sent, not abandoning him for some other way that seems better. God, thank you that you made your plan clear and plain, that you sent your only son in this amazing work of redemption. We pray that we will, each one of us, put our faith in Christ and so avail ourselves of this salvation which he brings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.